few miles south of Soledad, the Salinas River drops in close to the hillside bank and runs deep and green. The water is warm too, for it has slipped, twinkling over the yellow sands in the sunlight before reaching the narrow pool. On one side of the river, the golden foothill slopes curve up to the strong and rocky Galiban Mountains, but on the valley side, the water is lined with trees. Willows, fresh and green with every spring, carrying in their lower leaf junctures the debris of the winter's flooding, and sycamores with mottled, white, recumbent limbs and branches that arch over the pool. That was the opening of *Of Mice and Men*, John Steinbeck's novella, published in 1937. Welcome to this episode of *Stanford and the Twentieth Century*. The series that looks at history through the life and work of major global figures with a connection to the university. I'm Daniel Ray, and in this episode, we'll be exploring the work of John Steinbeck. Steinbeck studied at Stanford for six years without completing his degree, and went on to write some of the best-loved works in American literature. To discuss Steinbeck, I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Professor Gavin Jones. Professor Jones is the Frederick P. Remus Family Professor. Of the humanities at Stanford University, and an expert on Steinbeck. Gavin, welcome to the program. Thank you very much,、uh, Daniel. It's great to be back at KZSU. Great to have you, Gavin. Thank you. I thought I'd start by asking you why you've chosen Steinbeck as a subject for your research. Right. So I'm、uh, writing a book about Steinbeck at the moment, a collection of essays.、Um, my interest in Steinbeck really began when I was a, a teenager, reading in my bedroom. I'm still traumatized by the final scene of *The Grapes of Wrath*,、mm. so he had a great impact on me when I was at that age. But I never really studied him when I was an undergraduate. It wasn't until、um, a couple of years ago when I decided to teach a course on Steinbeck. Of course, he's a Stanford、yeah. alum, and I wanted to develop a lecture course that I thought would appeal to undergraduates. And so I developed.、Uh, A course on Steinbeck, and that made me aware, or reaware, I should say, of what a great writer he is, how timely his concerns are,、mm. and how experimental his、uh, writing style is.、Uh, you just read the opening of *Of Mice and Men*, which you know we tend to think of as a novel or a novella. It's actually a, a novel designed to be played, so、mm. it's a play in the form of the novel. So. What you were just reading、uh, was not a realist、uh, description of the location of the story, but in fact, it's a kind of direction for how the set should look when it's actually performed. And so,、uh, descriptions in *Of Mice and Men* are not descriptions of, you know, fictional persons as characters, but rather they're descriptions of actors playing characters. So it creates a kind of odd dynamic、uh, in that hybrid genre. That's just a quick example of.、Mm. How he was often pushing at the the boundaries of genre and was、uh, frequently frustrated at the limits of the novel and was always trying to push it in new directions. These are some of the things that interest me about him. And Stanford, what, two hours、uh, away from the Salinas Valley, must be a great place to carry out research. On yeah,、Steinbeck. sure. I mean, we are in Steinbeck country.、Mm. Um, he, as you mentioned, he was here as an undergraduate. Members of his family attended. Uh, Stanford Steinbeck's mother was a, a school teacher,、uh, so he was, in a way, sort of、uh, framed by these educational institutions in Steinbeck country. So Stanford was、uh, a place that was was very intimate and important for him as a writer.、Mm. I think. What did he 
learned from his time at Stanford? Well, he learned how to write. We tend to think of creative writing programs as being founded after World War Two. Mm-hmm. Th- that was the era of uh, creative writing program, MFA, um, MFAs, and that kind of thing. Um, but Stanford was unusual before the war in the 1920s when Steinbeck was here. It, it didn't actually have a creative writing program, but it had a very rigorous series of courses mm-hmm. in playwriting, short story writing. Uh, novel writing, journalism, uh, and Steinbeck, uh, he was an English major. Uh, he never graduated, as you mentioned. But Why didn't he graduate? I don't think he ever really intended to graduate. Okay. You know, it's unfair to, to, to see him as, as a kind of failure. I don't think he was. Certainly the conventional wisdom is that there is an antagonistic or there was an antagonistic relationship between Steinbeck and Stanford, and I don't think that's true at all. It was really a very important uh, part of his formation Mm. as a writer. So he was an English major. He took uh, a bunch of courses that helped him learn the craft of writing. So he was very influenced by a couple of English professors, both women, uh, Marjorie Bailey, uh, but most importantly, he was influenced by Edith Miralees. Uh, she was a legendary presence on campus. She wrote, um, there's a hall of residence actually named for her today. Uh, she writes a history of the university. Um, but she also taught Steinbeck uh, in the art of the short story. She has a book called Short Story Writing, uh, which Steinbeck writes a preface for later on in his career. And she was a huge influence mm. on him. And so he really honed his craft as a writer uh, while he was here at the university, as well as taking courses across the breadth of offerings in, in the sciences and philosophy as well. And who were his literary influences, particularly as he was starting out as a writer? Well, you know, that that's, <laughs> that's a good question. He had odd influences. Uh, you know, he was reading sort of romances and uh, historical romances where his contemporaries perhaps would have been reading James Joyce mm. and uh, high modernists. Um, I'm actually blanking on the names <laughs> of uh, some of the, the writers that influenced Steinbeck. And I think that point in itself is significant yeah. because he was not influenced by major uh, writers at all. He was influenced by uh, figures that today are really quite minor. Mm. So, yeah, he didn't really... Uh, feed from the same uh, streams as as Hemingway and Faulkner, I don't think. How would you describe Steinbeck's style? Well, Steinbeck has many styles. You know, he's a a master of the sentimental. He can be extremely melodramatic. Um, He can be a realist. Uh, People often consider him to be a late naturalist in the tradition of Jack London and uh, Mm -hmm. Frank Norris and those other... Californians. They influenced him, I think. He certainly was influenced by Frank Norris. I think he developed a series of styles. He also was a great writer of science. Uh, Sea of Cortez is a a travelogue, but it's also a science textbook. Mm -hmm. And so he would explore the aesthetics of science writing and found great poetry in science. Uh, And so would, in his style, attempt to break down the uh, kind of two cultures divide between the sciences and the humanities. Mm. And what about his dialogue? I'll have to confess that sometimes when the Okies speak in Grapes of Wrath, I'm really unsure what's going on. How much attention did he put on dialogue? Well, he was, a, I think, a very fine writer of dialogue. You mentioned the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, when he was writing the Grapes of Wrath, he was receiving reports from mm. somebody called Tom Collins, who was the manager of the Weed Patch 
migrant labour camp uh, just outside of Bakersfield. And Steinbeck would receive weekly reports from Collins describing life in the camp and also recording bits of migrant wisdom, uh, Mm. as uh, Collins called it. And often these bits of migrant wisdom would feature dialogue. Uh, And so Steinbeck was drawing from documentary Mm. evidence when he was writing some of his dialogue. Um, Of course, the the dialogue in The Grapes of Wrath has been criticized by a number of people as a a sort of baby talk and not Mm. particularly uh, realistic in its style. Uh, I think he had a very musical ear for the vernacular, Mm -hmm. but he also used that dialogue for uh, deeper purposes. Uh, For example... Uh, Grandpa, the character in The Grapes of Wrath, loves his pillow. He has this very deep uh, connection to the Mm. ontology of his pillow. But it's not a pillow, it's a pillar, P-I-L-L-A, right? Which is a sort of vernacular spelling of pillow. But it also establishes how that object is a unique object and it's something that Grandpa has a very personal Mm. relationship to. He's renamed it, and he will blow the goddamn stinking head off anybody who (laughs) uh, comes after his pillar. And why was the Grapes of Wrath burnt in Steinbeck's hometown, Salinas? Yeah, it was. uh, I'm not sure it was burnt in Salinas. Uh, Maybe it was. Um, It was certainly burnt in Kern County, California, uh, and in other places across the country, uh, usually by farm owners and by... Uh, I don't think it was burnt by by the migrants themselves. Mm. It was a controversial book uh, because of the conditions that it depicted in mm-hmm. California and the harsh treatment that the migrants uh, supposedly received yeah. at the hands of law enforcement and uh, the local authorities. Uh, so it it just doesn't depict California in a particularly uh, positive and rosy light. Uh, and in fact, this is, you know, it continues to be a controversial question. How accurate was his representation of life in the migrant labor camps? Uh, historians have, have questioned uh, whether the conditions were really as bad as, as, as Steinbeck uh, describes them. But I think he was describing what he saw, his yeah. own experience in the Central Valley in the mid-1930s. I don't think he was inventing it. He may have been manipulating it for uh, a sort of almost propagandistic punch, but Mm -hmm. I I don't think he was uh, inventing it particularly. Yeah. Years later, the day before his Nobel Prize award in Stockholm, the New York Times headline asked, does a writer with a moral vision of the 1930s deserve the Nobel Prize? What is this moral vision, do you think, that led to a rejection by a large portion of the literary elite? Right. Yeah, that was a very harsh review Steinbeck received in 1962 after winning the Nobel Prize. Uh, And this kind of criticism began in the late 30s in 1940. Edmund Wilson, probably the most Mm. prominent critic of his generation, has a very dismissive review of Steinbeck. And so there's a a tradition of uh, critics bashing him. Uh, And he was very upset by that review in 62 and effectively gives up fiction after that, um, that particular New York Times piece. I mean, the, the argument was that the decision was simply nostalgic and that he writes this one great novel and then he never really does anything significant uh, since then. Um, his moral vision? Well, uh, I don't know. Again, it's it's complicated. Um, he has many aspects, I think, of that vision. He was a great uh, believer in what we might call the folk in, in kind of a... a 
uh, a power within uh, common humanity. Um, he was very egalitarian and democratic as a thinker. He was also uh, sort, of, sort of an ecological thinker mm -hmm. and was very interested in man's relationship with uh, the environment. So I don't think you can reduce it to a single moral vision. Steinbeck's too full of contradictions for that to be true, I think. Um, at times he can seem like a kind of Jeffersonian agrarian. Mm -hmm. At other times he can seem like a communist. At other times he can uh, seem romantic uh, in his uh, love of uh, the people. So it's, it, it's kind of all over the place. Mm, yeah. These negative reviews have kept coming from the literary set. Fifteen years ago, Terry Teachout, critic for the Wall Street Journal, said that it was hard to imagine a time when second-rate propaganda pushers such as John Steinbeck were widely regarded as major literary writers. Is he a propaganda pusher? Uh, yes, but I don't think he's a second-rate one. Um, and I think that's a very insulting uh, thing for that person to have said because that's, that's not at all the case. He wrote propaganda. He wrote propaganda for the government. Uh, he writes a recruiting guide for the U.S. Army Air Force called Bombs Away. Um, so he was very interested in propaganda. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, The Grapes of Wrath is, in a sense, yes, an attempt to uh, impact the public mind and to change public opinion mm -hmm. and to mobilize uh, feelings of, of, of connection and, and, and sentiment towards the, the case of these impoverished uh, migrant laborers. So, yes, he certainly manipulated the tools of the sentimental to uh, make his point. But to say that he's, he's, he's second rate, I mean, I, I don't see that that kind of point really makes, makes any sense. Mm. What do you think compelled Steinbeck to write? Well, he always wanted to be a writer, and I think it came from almost a, a nervous, sort of visceral mm. uh, instinct that he had. He would always be writing, uh, always be uh, sketching something on the side. Uh, even in, in his you know, most intimate moments, he would be kind of sketching away. So he would talk of it as an aching urge within his chest that was always breaking to get out. So it was almost an anger and uh, something that was extremely uh, emotional, his desire to express. Uh, and then, of course, he was switched on by a number of, sort of social and environmental yeah. issues, um, the inequality that he and poverty that he witnesses that becomes mm -hmm. the grapes of wrath, the various uh, environmental and ecological questions that he confronts in um, Sea of Cortez, uh, labor action in Indubious Battle, his great novel about a strike. So he sort of gets switched on by various historical events and was often attempting to write inside history. Yeah. This is what he says about the Grapes of Wrath. He wants to write history while it is happening and he doesn't want to get it wrong. So he wants to get involved and to, involved and to sort of change the course of the historical moment at mm -hmm. times. Do you think the fact that he draws from contemporary occurrences so much diminishes his ability as a writer yeah i mean at times he gets it wrong i mean if you're if you're writing before you know who the winners and the losers are mm. then you're going to get some things wrong um, he gets some things wrong in the grapes of wrath uh, for example he 
and he writes about this as well in The Harvest Gypsies, which uh, is a, a series of essays that he writes that become a pamphlet called Their Blood is Strong, uh, which was a expose of these conditions in the Central Valley that then he fictionalizes or partially fictionalizes in The Grapes of Wrath. Um, he believed that the labor force in California would become white, the, the uh, agricultural labor force. He believed that the uh, migration of the Oklahomans uh, represented what he describes uh, quite problematically as a revitalization of the sort of Anglo-Saxon stock mm -hmm. and that somehow uh, the racial composition of uh, the labor force would change. And of course, he was totally wrong about that. Yeah. Um, it was a blip because of the Great Depression. Uh, and, you know, th those are moments where you can see him getting history wrong. Uh, and uh, they kind of hang there in a very problematic way, I think. Hmm. Does he blur the distinctions between journalism, fiction, non-fiction? Yes. Um, in The Grapes of Wrath, he certainly does. I mean, he was a fine journalist and has a lot of really wonderful war yeah. journalism and travel writing. Yeah, I mean, I, in The Grapes of Wrath, he would, you know, use these sort of great gobs of information as he uh, described them and, mm. and sort of import them uh, into his uh, prose. You know, the, the 1930s was the decade of, of documentary, so I think it was also part of that uh, importance and influence of a mm. documentary aesthetic on him as well. Yeah. And what about Travels with Charlie, where he <clears> goes <throat> on one final journey through the US with his, his poodle? Yeah. What can you about the genre of right. that book? Yes, Charlie, his um, companion species. You, you, you're not allowed to use the word pet anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's demeaning. <laughs> Um, you know, a fictionalized uh, autobiography or, or travel log, it's, mm. um, you know, it's, it's travel writing, basically, I suppose. So, yeah, he was, uh, you know, a great lover of animals and loved dogs and would always write about dogs and always had a dog. He writes The Red Pony, of course, which is one of the most famous American works about an animal, a story in which he tries to see from the the pony's point of view, he would often, in his writing, attempt to decenter the human from his perspective and uh, would offer animal perspectives mm. and, and also uh, sort of plant life was something that, that, that interested him as, him as well. And so he would often try and write from a plant's point of view. He was very experimental uh, and, and quite weird. At times, <laughs> uh, in, in, yeah, in, in that way. Uh, he has a story called The Chrysanthemums, which is about a woman who begins well in my reading anyway uh photosynthesizes and and begins to live like a plant mm. a very odd uh, story one thing that interests me about steinbeck is his ability to intuit the emergent that is to recognize things in the process of yeah. formation before they've gelled right before they become uh, established uh, that's very difficult to do but he has a great eye for that and so I would view Travels with Charlie almost as a sociological uh, document or a kind of ethnography of the nation yeah. in 1960 during this boom time, you know, the, the great acceleration, this, this massive shift in uh, American society. So he writes about the Cold War, uh, consumerism, 
Um, he writes about new types of personality that are coming into existence uh, because of uh, the dominance of corporations over the self. Uh, he writes about mobile home parks and suburbanization. He writes about the highway system and the impact that traffic is having on uh, humanity. So it's a, a great account of what's happening to the human species at this particular moment in history and the, the sort of the tectonic shifts mm. in uh, human character or at least American character at that time. And I think we see something similar in the Russian journal when he's traveling through the Soviet Union in 1946 with the Hungarian celebrity photographer Robert Kapper and has these wonderful vignettes and descriptions of everybody from, from peasants to people who proposition him in bars. How did that trip come about? Well, you know, uh, I wish I could say I knew a little bit more about mm. that. Um, but it, it, it sounds to me that you probably know more than I do. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, how did that trip come I, about, Daniel? I don't know. I think it's um, off the top of my head. I think it was the photographic company Magnum. I think they had something okay. to do with it. And that was where Robert Gapper came in. Right. Um, that, that, make, that would make sense. Yes. Uh, he was you know, very friendly with a number of photographers and I think was influenced by photography in his mm. writing as well. So, uh, and and then did, did it appear as, uh, you know, travel writing alongside photographs? Was that Yes, the, the, yes. Yeah. So you have um, Steinbeck's prose, which is wonderful, and then you have Kappa's photography of um, places like Stalingrad a few, right. a few years after destruction there. Yeah, and, um, yeah. They, they go from, uh, probably from Finland all the way down to the, all down to Tbilisi. Yeah. So it's a photo text. Sort of, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it's, it's not a long, no, a long book. No, but that, that really was, nice. right, that was yeah. a very important genre in the 1930s, the photo text. Yeah. Um, uh, James Agee and Walker Evans, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, is perhaps mm -hmm. the, the best known of those. And these were works that interested Steinbeck. And he worked with a number of photographers as well. Horace Bristol was another photographer uh, that he... Uh, works with when he's conceiving of the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. And also John Swope, a photographer that he works with in Bombs Away, uh, which is another photo text, the propaganda piece that he writes for the U.S. Army Air, a recruitment guide for okay. the U.S. Army Air Force, um, in which, you know, Steinbeck would actually participate uh, in bombing raids and training exercises and then... Uh, and his war journalism was like that too. He wouldn't mm. write at the time. He would experience life with the soldiers and then he would write about these events thereafter yeah and then moving forward a little bit he then is a big supporter of president johnson and the vietnam war how does someone who well I, yeah I, I think the jury's out on that you know i think um yes he tends to be pinned as a conservative later on in his career i'm not sure it's that's fair uh, i mean certainly he always had a conservative uh, side to him, um, as we all do, but he did. He writes a series of dispatches from Vietnam. He travels there in 1966. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows Lyndon B. Johnson because of Steinbeck's uh, wife um, Elaine, who was uh, close friends with Lady Bird Johnson, okay. and I think they were students together at UT Austin. I I, I'm not 100 percent, but I think that's the case. Uh, she was a Texan. Um, he has some wonderful descriptions of, of Texas in uh, Travels with Charlie, actually. And he has a, a very, very wonderful description. I'm digressing now. No, no, please. He has a wonderful description of Montana. Um, he says, Montana 
looks like what a 14-year-old would think Texas looked like <laughs> if he was listening to Texans talking about it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you probably had this feeling if you've ever been to Austin and listened to people from Austin talk about Austin and how amazing Austin is. Uh, and then you look around and, uh, and the, you know, I think Austin <laughs> is fine. You know, I quite like Austin, but um, it's, it's, you know, it's not quite, it's not quite uh, uh, living up to its description. I once met somebody who uh, was from Austin and lived there her whole life, and she believed that the Colorado River, you know, which yeah. you're probably familiar with, uh, flowed through Austin. The, there is a river called uh, the Colorado River. It's a Colorado River, but it's not the hey, Colorado, but, but, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, we were talking about what? We're talking about um, <laughs> um, his progression from being someone who was seen as perhaps to the left or perhaps oh yeah 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 vietnam yeah um so both of his sons serve in vietnam uh, and he goes over there uh, to visit them primarily i think uh, and they tell him you know dad look this is a mess yeah you know people people are smoking weed out of their gun barrels um uh, this is all going to end in a disaster Mm -hmm. um and in fact one of his sons a, a kind of, I believe, a, 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 a defects from from the army and uh, goes to live with the coconut monk, who oh. was a, a figure who lived on an island in a river in Vietnam and uh, falls under the uh, sway of this guru. Mm. Um, and uh, so he's, you know, his sons were were living proof that you know things were not really going so well uh, in that conflict. Um, so anyway, they tell him it's a total mess and it's all going to end in disaster. But he does come out largely in favor of the war, I think, to support Johnson. Yeah. Um, although if you look really closely and look at some of his letters, he was much more ambivalent about it than is conventionally thought. Yeah. Um, but he does have a sort of conservative side uh, to him. He was very supportive of the civil rights movements of the 1960s, mm -hmm. but he also believed that things were moving too quickly. Uh, and so he you know, has a number of letters to uh, Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., which was sort of urging a kind of a slowdown in the, the, the speed of the civil rights yeah. process, which can be perceived as a conservatist uh, viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, in part, it was, I think. Interesting. I want to ask you about East of Eden, which he regarded as his masterpiece, his magnum opus. And yes. The work that everything else was building towards. <clears throat> it seems very different from his other novels, novellas. Um, what do you think Stamet was trying to do with East of Eden? Well, he was writing from a distance, uh, for one. People tend to forget that he spends half of his writing career on the East yeah. Coast. So he abandons California. The reaction against him in California, or at least his perception of it, uh, after the Grapes of Wrath, makes him want to leave. And so he moves to New York, and then he moves to Sag Harbor, Long Island, yeah. um, uh, Winter of Our Discontent is... That yes, sort of yeah, 1961, Winter of Our Discontent is his great East Coast novel and a very good book, actually. Uh, he has some sort of patchy productions later on in, in his career and some very weird books. He has a book called Burning Bright. I don't know if you've no. ever read no. Burning Bright. It's very odd. He takes a group of characters and then he moves them through a series of totally unrelated scenarios so they start off as as circus trapeze artists <laughs> and then they become farmers um and then they become i think ships captains 
and it's it's just totally bizarre. It's his attempt at postmodernism that falls flat. Very very weird book. Um, but we were talking about East of Eden. Yes. Um, yeah. So he's writing it from the East Coast. He's trying to do various things. Mm. He wants to write a saga of his own family. He wants to write a mythical Cain and Abel yep. story, uh, so it has an allegorical element to it. He wants to write an epic of the Salinas Valley, so he performs a lot of historical research and draws on all these different sources. And he also wants to write about his own formation as a writer, so it's also a work of metafiction in which he's thinking about his own own formation. Uh, it's a an amazing book. I came to it quite late, actually. I didn't read it until a few years ago, and I was uh, shocked at its brilliance uh, and its breadth. Um, it also features a very important Asian American character in it called Lee. Wonderful character. I'm sure yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the most important character in the novel because he holds it all together. Mm. Uh, he is a servant in the book. But he's also the the author's servant in that he's there to hold the structure together. Mm -hmm. um, and he's a perfectly bicultural, sort of bi-dialectal yeah. figure who is competent both within the mainstream and within uh, Chinese culture. There's a wonderful bit that I, I love, which is, I think it's from the Hamiltons, you'll correct me, says, yeah. are you going to go to San Francisco and uh, set up a Chinese laundry, a Chinese grocery store? And Lee says, no, I'm... There's enough of those. I want to set up a bookstore. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, he's just, just a wonderful, yeah. wonderful character. Right, and he was telling a story that, that often doesn't get told about, you know, the educational level and the upward mobility and the prominence of Asian-American families mm. beyond the agricultural sphere in which uh, they were often reduced yeah. to or these service industries and so forth. I mean, he was recognizing uh, capabilities beyond the conventional wisdom. Mm. And also quite modern in terms of identity, I think, as well. I think Lee says things uh, such that when he, I think he goes to China at one point and, he, and people don't really recognise him. They don't right. really see him as Chinese. But, uh, and he feels very American. Yet when he's in the US, people are always assuming he's, he's from China. Yes, right. Yeah, Steinbeck was very interested in liminality mm. in these figures who exist between worlds and who are perhaps transitioning from uh, one state to another. Again, that idea of emergence is very important to him as a scientific concept, but also as a cultural concept. And so I think Lee uh, is a figure of emergence uh, for Steinbeck, and I think that exactly speaks to what you just described. Yeah. And what about some of the other characters in the East of Eden? Kathy, who's this reptilian mother madame figure is that a bit blunt in terms of steinbeck's portrayal of her well he uh, has some uh, let's say uh, issues on the question of gender uh, and his women characters uh, often uh, perform certain functions uh, for him and are not fully uh, rounded out mm. and can be problematic so i would say kathy is an example of that in Of Mice and Men, he has a character who's simply known as Curly's wife. Yeah. She doesn't even get a name. Um, so he's, you know, really problematic. I mean, not entirely so. I mean, there are powerful uh, women characters, Ma Jode, for example, in yeah. The Grapes of Wrath. But quite often he uses... Uh, Travels with Charlie is a good example where um, the uh, women characters are often quite superficial and are being used for particular sort of political... Uh, or ethical purposes by by the writer yeah. 
and East of Eden sales jumped after Oprah Winfrey chose it as her book club. Um, why do you think John Steinbeck has proved so enduringly popular so many decades after his writing? Yeah, all of his works, I believe, are currently in print, uh, even the weird ones. Mm. You know, and, the, and there are some very weird ones about sort of mystical fairy tales. Not fairy tales. Yes, yeah, he was right. He has uh, To a God Unknown, um, which is his very sort of mystical, mysterious uh, second novel. He, in some ways, was a magical realist mm, yes. uh, and can be seen in that tradition, I think. You know, the idea of magical realism develops out of German art criticism in the 1920s. So it's contemporary with his writing. We tend to associate it, of course, with Latin American writers from the, the boom from the 60s and mm. 70s. But his work does make sense very much within a, uh, the framework of magical realism. So, yeah, he has some odd books. To a God Unknown is, is, is one of those, um, and loved fairy tales and, uh, was also something of a medievalist. Mm. So he. Arthurian legend. Yes, yeah, he things. translates into modern English, uh, Thomas Mallory's, uh, Mort d'Arthur, uh, and would use in other fictional works, uh, Arthurian legends and yeah. would, would sort of, uh, uh, refigure them. Interesting, you mentioned the, the magical realism point, I think. One thing that strikes me is in, in Cannery Row, the description of the old Chinaman wandering through the streets yes. is to me quintessentially magical realist. Right. Do you know if he influenced, I mean, Garcia Marquez talks a lot about Faulkner's influence on him. Do you know if he influenced any of the Latin American boom? He, you know, I mean, the, you're touching on a very interesting question here. Um, the way that, that Faulkner is seen as... Uh, the great writer of the global south, mm-hmm. right? This is a conversation that's developed uh, quite recently. Um, and I think it, it um, develops out of the influence that Faulkner has on Marquez and other writers. They read him. The Wild Palms, for example, uh, was translated uh, quite early on into uh, Spanish. And uh, that has a great influence on these writers. But, you know, in my view, Faulkner really knew and cared very little uh, about anywhere south of, <laughs> of New Orleans, yeah. you know. I mean, look at his, look at the way Faulkner describes Haiti in Absalom, Absalom. You know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, um, the, the, the way that, that uh, it's described uh, and, and the way that he uh, basically defangs uh, or uh, takes out uh, the Haitian slave revolution, right? In, in Absalom, Absalom, he sort of deflates the importance of that moment in, in a way that I think is, is very problematic and the, in a way that critics don't really grapple with fully. But anyway, uh, Steinbeck was obsessed with Mexico and one third of his works treat uh, characters either of Mexican descent. Tortilla Flat, Tortilla Flat is an example of that. But also he spends a lot of time in Mexico and uh, makes movies in Mexico. The first Mexican movie to receive general release in the United States is John Steinbeck's The Pearl, mm. uh, 1947, uh, which was a movie that Steinbeck conceived simultaneously with his novella, The Pearl. And he makes the movie with Emilio Fernandez, a very important Mexican actor and filmmaker and director. So it was a collaboration uh, that he has with Fernandez. Uh, and it's, you know, one, see if Cortez is all about Mexico. He mm. called that the, Me- the Mexico book. Um, he, uh, Viva Zapata, yep. the Marlon Brando movie, uh, 1952, uh, one of the few 
movies from the 1950s where the Indians are the good guys. That's uh, he gets very interested in um, Emiliano Zapata, of course, the revolutionary leader uh, of the South. Um, writes and conducts a lot of important archival research mm. into Zapata and his life, uh, and uh, incorporates that into the the screenplay of Viva Zapata. Uh, so he really believed that the Mexican Revolution, which was such an important moment and an influence on many writers from the 1920s, he believed that it was an ongoing and unfinished revolution. Mm. Uh, and the pearl is an exercise, I think, mm. in in revolutionary conscience and consciousness making. Uh, so, yeah, so he has a very deep investment in the global south in a way that I think with Faulkner, it's clearly at the level of influence um, but, you know, to make out that, that somehow he's this rider of the global south, I think, is, is to mi- misrecognize him. Yeah. And did Steinbeck hope for a similar sort of revolution in the United States? Well, I, I'm sure that he believed that the American Revolution was an unfinished revolution. I'm sure looking around him, witnessing the poverty and inequality that he witnessed in the 1930s, uh, witnessing the rise of American fascism, witnessing the way that, that the media empires and the corporate sphere and um, uh, law enforcement were uh, linking arms uh, into a, a, a giant fascist force that was coming to dominate uh, the California uh, economy. Um, I'm sure that he he felt that that revolution um, was unfinished. Yeah. Maybe that's why he he speaks to so many people today. I think that is why he speaks to so many. I didn't really answer that question, did I? You asked me uh, why do his works endure? I I think because of their variety. Um, for one, he wrote in so many different genres and was always changing the way he wrote. So there's something in Steinbeck for for everybody. Uh, But I think, for me, he remains important uh, and particularly timely uh, because of his interest in the environment, his interest in race and inequality and poverty, all of those social issues still very much with us today, of course, and also because of his interest in what today would be called the post-human. That is, finding a vision a planetary vision in which humans are not necessarily central. Uh, He was fascinated with the possibility of human extinction. Uh, He was an ecological writer uh, working with his friend, the marine biologist Ed Ricketts, to create a sort of ecological vision in Sea of Cortez. Uh, And he was very interested in humanity as a species, uh, basically looking at us objectively, scientifically, biologically. This is something that he gained from Stanford as well. He took a lot of courses in the sciences, courses at the Hopkins Marine Institute. Um, So he wanted to look at us uh, from the most distant possible perspective. So that's something for me at least that makes his works endure today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stanford and the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. Join me next time when I'll be hearing about the groundbreaking career of Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. With me will be her friend and biographer, the ABC broadcaster, Lynn Scher. Thanks for listening.